Our readings from Acts chapter 4, and it's on page 1095 of the Church Bibles. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Anas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they've performed a notable sign. We cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. 
Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Good morning. Thank you, Nicola, for uh, reading that piece of scripture. Um, Let's just pray, shall we? Oh, that's quite loud, Holly. Is that okay? Can you hear me all right? Good. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenges sometimes that your word brings. And we ask this morning that you will help us to grow, that you will help us to learn, help us to become more like you. Amen. So when Tim first told me that we were going to do a series in Acts, I confided in him that um, I actually find Acts one of the scariest books in the Bible. Um, I'm much more in my comfort zone in the kind of theological hinterland of some of the letters or something like Exodus or something like that. That's where I know that I feel comfortable as a Christian. Um, Acts, for me, makes me feel quite uncomfortable. Makes me feel quite uncomfortable as a Christian. So um, it was with some trepidation um, that I've been preparing this passage. And I think this is one of those moments which, for me, actually, I find really quite challenging. So I'm speaking from a place of challenge this morning, I'm afraid. Um, For me, it might be for you, um, you're fine. (laughs) Um, But I found this passage remarkably challenging. Um, And there's something kind of visceral about the book of Acts that challenges me. There's something immediate about it. There's so much that happens that's remarkable. Um, And I think when I'm reading the Gospels and I hear about Jesus doing remarkable things, in my brain I'm able to compartmentalize that and say, well, that's Jesus. Fine. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of comfortable with that's Jesus and Jesus is the Son of God and he does these things. The thing about Acts that bothers me is that these are ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Does that ever bother you? These are ordinary people doing extraordinary things. These are people just like you and me. And that's why it's so deeply challenging to me. It always makes me feel like my Christian walk is pretty mundane by comparison. (laughs) Um, And this is a story about how the Holy Spirit works through ordinary people. And how, actually, if a community of faith step out in boldness, empowered by the Spirit, then incredible things can happen. Incredible things can happen. So, actually, my approach this morning isn't going to be particularly theological. Um, There's lots of things we could say theologically about this kind of, this passage. But it's, I want to root ourselves this morning in Peter's shadow. I just want us to 
step into Peter's shadow for a moment and just reflect on what this moment before the Sanhedrin might have meant to him. What it might have felt like to be Peter in this moment and perhaps to reflect together whether there's something therefore for us. Because, you know, we're often familiar with Peter, St. Peter of um, kind of stained glass window fame um, as this kind of great apostle, this great man, which he was, but he was also an ordinary person. We know, don't we, that his journey was never straightforward. His journey was never straightforward. You know, he is the man who both stood upon and sunk beneath the waves. This is the man that we are talking about. And there's a sense in the Gospels, isn't it, that Peter has this kind of intense desire to follow Jesus, but then he has a number of frailties and weaknesses that prevent him from being the person that Jesus needs him to be. That's the story in the Gospels. And if we remember that the book of Acts is the kind of partner volume to the book of Luke, we recognize that this sequel story is as much about somebody like Peter as it is um, also about Jesus and everything that Jesus is doing by his spirit. Now, as most of you know, I work in a school. Um, I'm a teacher. And so I'm very much in the business of um, people's um, progress and growth. That's, I've spent my whole life um, educating young people, wanting them to grow and develop as human beings. Um, and I, I have that same desire for the people that I work alongside, my colleagues. I want to see people grow. I think that's what schools should be about. It's what I've spent my life doing, trying to help people to grow. And I think churches also should be places of growth. I don't know if you agree with that or not. I think they should be places of growth. I hope we agree. <laughs> Tin's nodding, so that's good. Um, you know, in schools, we do a school report every term that we send home to the parents. I'm sure you remember them from when you were at school, where you might get certain judgments about how much progress you've made um, in, the, in the previous six weeks. Um, it's quite a harsh thing to do, actually, isn't it, for a kind of 14-year-old? Well, in the last six weeks, have you made progress? I'm going to tell your parents all about it. Uh, it's something that we do, and it's something that's important that we do. Um, and it just, you know, I have these kind of uh, mischievous thoughts um, when I'm preparing um, I wonder what my report card would say in terms of my spiritual growth over the last six weeks, over the last term. How far have I grown? Um, what kind of growth have I experienced um, over the last few months? To what extent are we as a church growing? What would our report card say about us over the last six weeks? Are we growing together in Christ? Um, there's a, quite a challenging section in the letter to the Hebrews, actually, uh, where the writer to the Hebrews challenges that community because um, he perceives that they're not growing particularly in their faith. Um, and he writes this. He says, uh, anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, he says, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, he says, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. To go on to maturity. And using that metaphor of weaning off milk food onto solid food and in so doing, growing into the kind of grown-ups that Christ wants us to be. It's quite challenging stuff. It's quite challenging stuff. Uh, it has been for me this morning. Um, 
And I can hear the frustration in the language of the writers of the Hebrews because as somebody who works from teenagers, sometimes you don't see them grow in the way that you'd like them to grow, and that's a bit frustrating. You want them to grow up. You want them to develop, and you have that heart for them. And I, I believe God has that heart for us too. And I don't know where you are. Um, I don't know where you are in your walk, um, how much growth you've experienced over the last few months. Maybe it's been a bit of a hinterland and you don't feel like you've moved on. Maybe you even feel you've taken a step backwards this morning. Um, and so I think if that's you, then I think this passage is for you this morning. And it was for me. You know, sometimes I feel like I'm spinning the wheels of a bicycle without a chain attached um, and not really making much progress. Um, but there is encouragement for us, friends. You'll be happy to know. You'll be relieved, Alistair, to hear in chapter 4 of Acts, <laughs> just because you reacted. <laughs> I'm not, you know, speaking. I don't know about your situation. Uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, we've got Peter here, this kind of elite spiritual force in this moment. You know, what an incredible moment. He's standing in front of the Sanhedrin. These guys are the most powerful people in his community. They are super powerful, and they've put him in prison for a night, and then they've brought him into this courtyard and said, right, answer us. What on earth are you doing? These are the same men who contrived to have Jesus crucified about six weeks beforehand. Six weeks. That's all it's been. About a term. Sorry, I think in terms. A half term, actually, isn't it, Neve? A half term. It's only a half term ago that these same men were successful in putting the Son of God to death. And they've kept him in prison overnight, and they've brought him forward, and they've said, what are you guys doing? By what authority are you doing these things? Now, I just want to step into Peter's story for a moment. I can't help but wonder whether in his mind he's gone back six weeks where does that take him in his imagination? If he goes back six weeks, where is he? He's in a courtyard. Do you remember this? He's in a courtyard. And he's not being questioned by the Sanhedrin. There's just a servant girl there, a nobody, who just says, hang on a second. Aren't you associated with this guy over here? And what does he do? He says, no, 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 no. Don't know the man. Don't know the man. You remember. Six weeks ago. That's where he was. He was denying his Lord and Savior to a servant girl in a courtyard for fear of persecution, for fear of what would happen next. It's amazing, isn't it? The growth. The growth of this man in six weeks to go from a man in a courtyard saying, I don't know this guy, to standing in front of the Sanhedrin and saying, you are the guys who put my Savior, our Savior, to death. You are the ones who crucified him. It's deep. I find it deeply challenging. I find it deeply challenging. So, you know, we see in verse 7, they say, by what power or what name did you do this? It's a hugely threatening question. Why are you doing this? How are you doing this? Tell us. It's a hugely threatening question. Peter has to be in a position now where he's ready to die. Do you agree? He's had a whole night in prison to think about it. He has to know that there is a strong chance that if he says what he believes in this moment, he's going to die. Just step into his shadow for a moment. And I can just 
I can just feel him replaying those past failures in his, and, and I, can, I can imagine him being on the beach again in his imagination, his memory, with Jesus saying, do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Take care of my lambs. Do you love me? And I just think it's a remarkable moment of growth. And the threat to Peter's life here is immense and real. You know, perhaps he can remember the bitter tears that he shed after he realized that he denied Jesus' name three times. Perhaps he can remember that. Perhaps he can remember his shame, his confusion, his fear, his sense of inadequacy, that his faith back then was too small to meet the challenge of the moment. I just want us to step into Peter's mind. We're not doing anything theologically particularly this morning. We're just stepping into the moment. And I want to suggest something to you this morning that, that Peter, you know, Jesus gave Peter the name Cephas, the rock, Simon. He renames him Peter the moment he meets him, says, you're the rock. And at no point in the Gospels is Peter the rock, <laughs> apart from perhaps when he sinks, that's, you know. Little, little physics joke. Um, at no point is he the rock until now. Do you see this moment, this threshold moment? This is the first time in Acts when they meet real opposition. This is the moment for P Peter to become who Jesus saw that he could become, to be Cephas. This is the moment, Peter, to be the rock. And I want to suggest to you this morning that he couldn't be the rock unless he'd been the denier in the courtyard, unless he'd sunk into the waves in that moment on the Sea of Galilee, unless he'd been on the beach with Jesus, being restored and being recommissioned. I think all of those moments of failure and pain and difficulty and shame have lent himself to this place of growth where he can be who Jesus says that he is. It's a remarkable story of growth. What a remarkable six weeks. It feels like, to me, that Peter emerges from the chrysalis in this moment of Acts 4. More so than the healing, actually. The healing is incredible, don't get me wrong. But I feel like this is the moment when Peter becomes the rock. Because of his history. You see that, don't you? This is what he's been called to do. To stand in the face of oppression, like a stone, and say, Jesus is the name by which men must be saved. What a moment. What a moment for Peter. What a six weeks of growth. Look at what he says. He says, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Look at the difference between I don't know this person. Look at the difference. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucify. Whoa! Whoa! These guys are super powerful. They are, they're running the table in his community. I love it. I mean, it's terrifying, but I love it. It's not even, oh, this is what I believe, and, you know, this is where I am, and, you know, I'm sorry if that offends you, but it's just my view, and, you know, I just happened, you know, and you can believe what you like, and, but this is where I am. We're going to come back to this. No, no, no. It's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, very specific, whom you crucified, by whom God raised from the dead that this man stands before you, Healed. There's all sorts of theology in there. We haven't got time for it. But it's just amazing. 
that he can say this. And then even more so, I love the way he changes this quote from the Psalms. He is the stone you builders rejected. You see that? It's not the builders, you builders. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Wow. What an incredibly bold thing to do. I can't quite get my head around it. This is a guy who six weeks ago wouldn't even tell a servant girl that he even knew Jesus. It's remarkable, isn't it? What a story of growth. It's growth forged in the fires of pain and regret and shame and love and forgiveness. But it's also about the growth that is possible when the Holy Spirit gets involved in a Christian's life. That's what I believe. That's what I believe. You see, we mustn't fall into the trap of what I tend to do with the Gospels and say, well, that's fine for Peter, but it's different for me. I'm not saying that Peter wasn't special, or at least wasn't working as a disciple and as an apostle in a particularly important time in the life of the church and in God's story, but he was an ordinary person. Do you know the one verse out of all of this that struck me the most? It's verse 13. It's probably one that you just read, gloss over, because it's not one of the kind of heavy hitter verses. What do they say about Peter and John? I love it. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized what? They were unschooled, ordinary men. I love that. Don't you love that? They were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished that these unschooled, ordinary men should stand before them with such authority. What is it about them? Well, they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Simple. These men had been with Jesus. You know, these are intellectual, religious heavyweights here. Okay, the high priest. You know, these guys know the Torah inside out. They're powerful, they're influential. And what they see before them are these, these ordinary guys, these laborers, these guys who work their trade on the lake. And here they are in the Sanhedrin, going toe-to-toe with the most powerful religious and political figures of their community. It's remarkable, isn't it? You know, Peter didn't have a PhD in theology. He didn't have a background in public speaking. He didn't come from a powerful family. He didn't receive some kind of anointing at birth. When Jesus chose Peter, he chose an ordinary man, somebody just like us. It's encouraging, isn't it? Encouraging and scary. (laughs) Encouraging and scary. And I think this is why I find this book so uncomfortable to read. You know, as I said before, it's a story of ordinary people doing extraordinary things through the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, these people, we know them. We know them from the accounts in the Gospels. They're flawed. They have failings, just like you and me. They're weak at times. They're a bit stupid at times when they keep asking Jesus obvious questions. (laughs) Well, I've already explained this to you about a hundred times, and yet you ask me again. And now here they are, titans of the faith, healers, orators, agitators, evangelists. You know, we're told in verse 4 that about 5,000 people joined the church because of this one moment. This is an ordinary person, just like me and you. And I think what this story tells us this morning is that the power of the Spirit unleashed in ordinary lives can do remarkable things. And my friends, it's the same Spirit in this room right now, this morning, moving amongst us. Same Spirit. I believe that. 
great things can be done when we proclaim the powerful name of Jesus. Now, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? You might ask yourself, how do I get on this progress road? You know, six weeks? <laughs> I want a piece of that. Or maybe I don't, actually, because of where it leads you. Big question, right? You know, sometimes in, uh, I really like it in airports, where what they call travelators, you know, when you go on those, they're like an escalator that's on the flat, and you feel superhuman, because you kind of, you walk normally, but you're going really fast. Like, there's a kind of travelator of growth that Peter's been on, I think, over six weeks, uh, with the risen Jesus, you know, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that's just kind of supercharged his journey. And you might ask this morning, you know, I want a piece of that. Where could I be in six weeks' time? In my, in my journey, as I enter Lent, where could I be? Um, maybe I'm a bit scared of where I could be. And I don't know what the Sanhedrin is for you. I think we've probably all got a Sanhedrin somewhere in our lives, somewhere where we perhaps feel a bit scared to speak what we believe. It might be a family member. It might be a, a close friend. It might be a workplace. It might be being part of a sports team, or it might be when you're down the pub with a particular friend from university. I don't know what scenario is Sanhedrin for you. You know, because for Peter, Sanhedrin is like courtyard times 100, isn't it? It's, it's taking him play, play, back to that place of rejection where I actually I stay quiet, and he gets to go again. And I think probably we've all got those places in our lives. So, so how do we get... How do we jump on that travelator and get to that point where the next time we're in that Sanhedrin place, we can say what we believe? We can say what we believe. So I think there's a clue in the believer's prayers that happen after the main event, which is not a passage that I know particularly well, I'm ashamed to say. And when I reread it in this story, it was actually the post-prayer that I found most helpful for me. Um, I think there's a clue. What happens? So they, they have this event. And then what happens? Well, they gather together again in the upper room. We think it's probably the upper room. It doesn't specify that, but the general suggestion is it makes sense that they'd still use the same place where they used to meet with Jesus. They gather together as a community. They draw strength from one another. They raise their voices together in prayer. These are not complicated things, are they? Uh, this is what we'd call the normal rhythms of a Christian community. This is, this is the travelator, my friends. I'm sorry it's not more complex than this. We gather together, we raise, raise their voices in prayers. But let's just read their prayers for a moment because they're incredibly powerful. And I want to suggest this morning that we could borrow them. We could borrow them. Because their prayers show a deep understanding of who God is and his sovereignty in the world. It shows their deep understanding that God and the Holy Spirit inspired other ordinary people before them. So they reference David here, saying it's the same Holy Spirit that allowed David to achieve what he achieved. They recognize that. So they look at David the way that we look at Peter as this kind of titan of the faith and say it's the same spirit for us. And they're very clear in their prayers that their work is part of a larger story, something that we're going to see again actually when Stephen appears before the Sanhedrin in a few chapters' time. They understand that the Holy Spirit that empowers them at that moment is the same spirit who empowered Abraham, Moses, and David. And we get to add our names to this list. And then they prayed a prayer that for me captures their newfound sense of power and mission. 
And it's a bold prayer. It's a bold prayer this morning. It's a realistic prayer and acknowledging something that whenever the name of Jesus is spoken in truth and power, the resultant response will probably be one of difficulty, be one of opposition, possibly even danger. And I don't think it's any less dangerous for us to pray this prayer this morning. You know, we live in a secular world. We live in a world of moral and spiritual relativism. I think it's difficult for us to state categorically in our society that this is true and that there is no other name. People don't mind the fact that we meet here on a Sunday and, you know, they mind us going out there and saying, actually, this is the truth. That's what people mind. And it makes people angry and resentful. And they'll say that we're bigoted and they'll say that we're closed-minded and that we're judgmental for saying what we believe. There's such a salvation is found in no one else is the statement. And it's as dangerous to say now as it was to say then, I believe. You know, there are different ways of being crucified. And that's scary. That's scary. You know, the idea that you have your truth and my, I have my truth, everyone's fine with that. The idea that such a thing is the truth is a different challenge altogether. So this is a challenge for us this morning, I'm afraid. And so if we feel bold enough, there's a prayer in verse 29. I'm just going to read it. They pray this. This is after being arrested and almost, I would argue, being put to death. And bearing in mind what happens to Stephen in a few chapters' time. This is what they pray. They say, now, Lord, now, consider their threats. Not take them away. Notice. Not protect us from them keep us from harm. They don't pray that. They just say, consider their threats, and then in knowledge of their threats, what do they pray? Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. That's a big prayer, isn't it? That's a big prayer. You know, they've just been told in no uncertain terms, if you keep using this name, you guys are going to die. And they get together and they say, we're going to consider their threats, but we're going to pray this. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Hugely challenging. <laughs> so, I encourage you this morning, if you feel able to pray this prayer, pray this prayer in our hearts. Notice that it's the Lord who enables them to speak in boldness. It's not that they're especially qualified. They are ordinary people and so this morning, we ask the Holy Spirit to shake this place. That's what happens, right? Shake the place. Fill us with his power so that we might go out from here and be bold and confident about what we believe and who we says is Lord. And so we ask this morning for God to stretch out his hand to heal, to do mighty things through his name in our lives Amen? Let's just pray. And just as we pray, I'd just like you to hold a, a Sanhedrin place in your mind. It might be a person. It might be a person that you are afraid of uh, telling about your faith to because you like them <laughs> and you want them to like you back or you're afraid of them or you feel that somehow it might 
risk your position in some way or your reputation or you fear their judgment. I just want to hold that place in our minds. And I'm going to pray this prayer. And if you want to say amen with me, do. If you don't, that's okay. Because it's a bold prayer to pray. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servant to speak your word with great boldness. Amen.